deep faith is kind of beyond words. We may have lots and lots of things that we want from God, or we may have many arguments, but ultimately when we sit before his presence, it, we don't need the words even because he knows what we what we need and he can clarify those arguments like he does it all and this was the real sense i had during my conversion was it wasn't about men or women trying to convert me it, it was about god it was only jesus christ that was going to convert me sally reed is an acclaimed poet whose work has been translated into five languages she recounts her 2010 conversion to catholicism in night's bright darkness published in 2016, with further reflections on coming of age as a person of faith in her 2019 book, Annunciation, A Call to Faith in a Broken World. We speak with her today about her 2021 collection of poems, Dawn of This Hunger, which poetically revisits episodes from the life of Jesus. I'm Matthew Wickman of BYU's Faith and Imagination Institute. Sally Reed, coming to us from Rome. It's great to talk with you this morning. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. So perhaps we can begin with the preface um, to your most recent collection of poems, uh, Dawn of This Hunger, which is a, a book I uh, just I love. I'm quoting you from the preface. You write this. My reputation, such as, such as it was, was that of a feisty young woman. I intuited that when I became Catholic, the audience from my poems would change. I didn't even know if um, I would write poetry at all anymore. My conversion meant that my very being was undergoing an almost harsh clarification. Okay, that's a provocative way to begin the book. I'm curious what you mean by harsh clarification, and even more, I'd like to know whether you were surprised to find yourself still writing poems. Um, have your gifts as a poet changed after your conversion, or do you possess the same gifts just applied to different subject matter? Well, I think that um, for me, the conversion was so huge um, and so mind-blowing and life-changing. Because when you go from not believing that there is any God at all, and then you accept that there is God, that's so enormous that it really does throw everything up into the air. You, are, you have to face the fact that if you were so wrong about something so big, then there could be enormous details of your life or you know, fundamental blocks of your life that need to be changed, right? And so I'd been for years and years writing these poems and been very much in con trying to be in control of what talent I had as a writer and trying to, be, you know, be clever and be successful and all those things that we all do. And suddenly I realized that, wow, actually none of that matters. Really, none of that matters. And probably I've got a lot of it wrong. <laughs> you know, and I and I knew that actually, if God had said, you know, if I felt that God was saying, you know, you don't need to write any more poems now, I, I wouldn't have written any more. I mean, it just wasn't like that anymore. It wasn't about any kind of a career. So it was about seeing myself in very stark terms and thinking, you know, what does God want me to do? And in terms of, do I write different things now? Um, I do write differently in the in the sense that. I'm not churning out the poems, but it took me 10 years to put together the poems in this collection. And I've really spent much more time writing prose in terms of articles and the memoir and various other things. So prose has really come into its own in my life. Um, so I consider myself as a poet still, but I also consider myself a prose writer. Okay. And I've read two of your books of prose. Um, and we'll talk about those a little bit later. I've read uh, Night's Break Darkness, A Modern Conversion Story, and Annunciation. A Call to Faith in a Broken World. More on those in a little bit. You say something there I find really compelling. 
that I think would come as a surprise to a lot of people who aren't who don't believe in God, which is that after your conversion, you found yourself thinking, uh, if I was wrong about about God's existence, what else am I wrong about? Which a lot of people who are not believers in God uh, associate belief in God with like crutches or a false certainty. But what you're describing actually is to believe in God suddenly is to have so many things called into question. It's, it's, mm. it's an absence of certainty about so many things, which I think is such a, a brilliant insight into the nature of a life of faith. Mm. And at the same time, though, you have this foundation. You know, you have yeah. the house built on the rock. So, so not, actually, I didn't feel, I did feel frightened. Actually, I shouldn't say I didn't feel frightened, because I did. But at the same time, you know that you have the fundamental. And so there's, you, there was no question. There's no, no way I was going to say, oh, well, I'll ignore God and go on with what, what I think I need to do. You know, you just, I knew that I had to kind of listen and be attentive. Really. Yeah, no, that's a great point. On the basis of the foundation, one can question a lot of things um, mm. with a sense of stability about how one is questioning. Yeah, it's, it's a, that's a great point. This book of poems here, uh, Dawn of This Hunger, what was the inspiration for it? You said it took you 10 years. Um, how did it come to you to write that book at all? Well, um, so when I converted, I, I realized that, you know, who was going to read my new poems? Because as a poet, you know, you don't just decide what to write. You, you end up writing what's really in your heart. So, you know, the, one of my books was entirely about my daughter, or almost entirely about my daughter, when I became a new mother. And when I started to believe in God, then everything was about God. So I, I knew that I'd be writing religious poetry. And I thought, well, that, you know, my publisher's not going to want it. So what do I do? <laughs> and I thought, well, you know, where am I going to publish it? And all that kind of stuff. And um, the priest who kind of oversaw my conversion, he, um, at the same time, he'd left his order and he'd set up a hermitage. And this was like very new in Rome. And so I said to him, look, I said, I'll be your poet in residence. Um, he's just a nice guy, you know, he said, okay, that's fine, <laughs> you, you can do that. And so what, what that did was it gave me, um, it kind of gave me the impetus to write certain things. Like I wrote a poem for the inauguration of the Hermitage. And then when we got to, uh, to Easter, I, I would deliberately write some poems for various feast days. And I found that really a good kind of structure, a good framework to kind of prompt me to write things. And so over the over the decade really writing for the Hermitage, I just collected lots of different poems and I couldn't see how they all fitted together at all. Um, and then, cut a very long story short, um, in 2021, I think, no, 2020, I beg your pardon, during the pandemic, um, I was, happened to be praying a couple of novenas simultaneously, not on purpose, they were kind of for different Catholic feasts. And as I was praying these novenas, I suddenly, it was, it was just like a whoosh. I knew how everything should fit together, exactly where the other poems were, exactly the new poems I needed to write, and I did it in about a week. It was just one of those absolute lightning flashes of inspiration. And wow. so that's how it all came together. And I, I could see that they were all linked in this kind of cycle that was really the life of Christ, because I didn't even see that <laughs> until, yeah. you know, until that point. It's strange. It sounds, it reminds me of what is it Rilke that talks about uh, kind of writing under this sort of flash of inspiration and producing them as best poems in that kind of a, that kind of a state. It, it, it's such a stunning collection. I forget where it is, um, Sally, that I first heard about the collection, but I remember when I came across it, someone somewhere mentioned it, it could be social media or a catalog or a conference, I forget where it was. Someone mentioned, I thought, that sounds good. And I, so I, I, I bought the book and I got it and put it into a stack of things. Um, and you know, I didn't get to it right away, but I got to it, I don't know, a couple months later. 
Um, when I did read it, finally, I was so struck by so many things about it. I mean, I loved the concept, these poems about the life of Christ. I loved it. I loved the way that you were able as a poet to imagine yourself in the various aspects of the life of Christ. I loved the poem's um, feel for the tenor of spiritual experience and the way you employ really high-quality poetry as a vehicle for conveying a sense of the transcendent and more. Um, I guess you'd answered the question I was going to ask you next, which is, were these poems difficult to write, uh, or did they flow as a, as, a, as a consequence of how close the such matter is to you? And it sounds like they really, once you kind of got a sense for what you wanted to do, they really flowed for you. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that poems are never easy to write. I think, like Keats said, that poems should be as easy, writing poems should be as easy as the leaves falling from the trees. And that's true to an extent, but there's an awful lot of wrangling <laughs> and yeah. worry and ca counting of syllables and doing all that kind of work. But, you know, on the whole, yes, I would say that they did kind of flow. And I think that um, if poems don't flow, um, you've kind of lost them, you mm. know, to an extent. It's, it's a really in intricate balance between sweat and inspiration. I love like that. you have to have you have to have both you know and that's that's really that's the whole thing with poetry if you're sweating too much you lose it right <laughs> but if it's too much if it's too much inspiration and there's not enough work you've lost it too it's, it's really tricky yeah that's that's a great point you know I've, I've been doing some work on the poet Denise Levertov um, mm, and like she her. oh she's and she writes some just phenomenal poems and and she talks about this she talks about you know all the work that you do to seek inspiration but it's inspiration you want as a poet and not all the work you do preliminary to the inspiration you receive. And, you know, and, and so that you spend all this time trying to prepare for a thing that you cannot anticipate, which is the inspiration. Mm -hmm. And once you mm -hmm. receive it, you go back afterwards. You kind of make sure you kind of put things into the proper frame and order. Did you get the inspiration right? But it's a, it's a fascinating process to produce these poems. I wonder if we could read um, some poems um, from the book and talk about them and perhaps alternate. I mean, you could choose a poem to read first, and I'll choose one, and so on. Would that be okay with you? Absolutely, yeah. Wonderful. Yeah. So should, should I go first? Yeah, please do. Okay. Um, well, I'm going to read one about um, the prophetess Anna, who's talked about in Luke. Um, and she's the one who's always waiting in the temple for the coming of the Messiah, waiting in the darkness. And then when, you know, Jesus and, and um, Mary and Joseph bring Jesus into the temple, she sees him and she knows who he is. Is this so a prophet? The prophetess sees the Christ child. Perfect. Yeah. Okay. Page eighteen. Yeah. And it's yeah, and it's prefaced with this um, with this quote from Luke. She did not depart from the temple, and coming up at that very hour, she gave thanks to God and spoke of Him to all. I sing praise, billowing, heady, as though juggling torches of flame. In the tight dark of fasting and prayer, I was earthbound like a seed feeding on waiting and the close art of listening. My cloistered flesh white as a tooth in the night of a mouth. Then this, the coming of him in luminous flesh in her arms. I dreamed him in darkness, see him now and will see him again. Words push up past my tongue. I am old, but a reckless lover of certainty. Yes, his were the veins, nourished the black earth of my vigil. I sing praise. Such a beautiful poem. I love it. Some of the lines in here are so rich. Uh, 
you know, I, were, I mean, sentences like, or, or lines like, for example, um, I was earthbound like a seed, feeding on waiting and the close art of listening. Uh, I, I love that term. You, you're feeding on something which is non substantive, you know, in the sense it's not literal food, but the feeding on, on art of listening. My cloistered flesh, white as a tooth in the night of a mouth. Then this colon line break, the coming of him in luminous flesh in her arms. It, it, can you tell me about how that poem came to you? Like, what, uh, Did you say to yourself, we need a poem about Anna, therefore I need to find a way to create one, to tell the story of the poems, you know, as a, as a volume? Or was it more that the poem came to you when you found where it fit into the volume? Do you know, I think it was one of the last ones I wrote. I think it was really one of the very last ones. And I do believe, I thought to myself, I'd like to write something about Anna because she's always somebody who's really fascinated me. And I love the, the idea of, there's this sense in the scripture that she she's bubbling over. She's like telling everyone about this about this baby. And I thought it was so exciting. And it's just such a lovely image of her in the kind of the darkness of the temple. And then she's got to tell everybody so I think it was quite a, it was quite a rational you know, it was quite a, a conscious decision to do that actually. Okay, yeah. It's and then I don't know how I don't know how the images came. It was one that came very fast, so I don't know. Yeah, it no, it's beautiful. The, the 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 light and darkness images in this poem. In fact, in many of the poems here, that's one of the really striking things about the collection of poems is these these play of contrasting images, where a lot though of the of the the, the most spiritual spiritually intense insights. Are, are playing first in this sense of darkness, right? Like, like Anna, I dreamed him in darkness, see him now and we'll see him again, right? It begins in darkness and then it emerges into something like, it's a beautiful poem, I uh, think. I wonder if I could read one, uh, let me see. Uh, it's What the Sparrow Saw on page five. So mind if I read this one? Please do. If I read it poorly, you can say, no, 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 Matt. Let me, let me, let me correct you. Okay. <laughs> I would love somebody else to read my poems. <laughs> okay. I, 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 poetry is meant to be read aloud. And, and, and these, again, these are such high-quality poems just for poetry's sake. So, okay, here we are. What the Sparrow Saw. In the long afternoon, dull with expected sunlight, is it possible that a bird nearby would not be changed at its scorched wingtip or in its jagged gaze by what it witnessed? Would it have seen the angel or just the staggered girl holding her own hands? Would she have been so still that he rested for a moment on her arm like a winter branch but soft? Or would he have jittered, flitted at the immense bodiless made present like a sunset on the doorstep, a tsunami in the barn and if his breast feathers were warmed, shaken harder by his minuscule heart, if his eyes contained then a moment's intense knowledge at what was near, or even a crazed bird madness, what deep hope for me as I kneel before your presence? Okay, beautiful. Can you tell us about this poem's uh, conception? <laughs> Yeah, well, I've written a lot of poems about the Annunciation. It's a scene that really just captures my imagination. And I was, I, I can't stop writing about it. And I was just imagining it in different ways. And I just, I think there's a painting actually with, um, I think just with Mary and a bird. I just became very fixated on the bird. I was thinking about, you know, at the point of the Annunciation, a bit like at the point of the crucifixion when all of nature went dark. 
you know, and, and the, the earth split open. It seems almost impossible at the moment of the Annunciation. Something wouldn't be happening in nature too. And you can imagine what was going on around Mary and the angels. So it was really from that and from the kind of perspective of this little sparrow, like she, the sparrow must have thought it was like caught in a, in a, in a storm or a whirlwind or, or something, you know. Yeah, no, I love it. Um... I love um, that last line, you know, I'm, that, that what deep hope for me as I kneel before your presence. That phrase, deep hope, captures a kind of an ambiguity in the poem, right? On the one hand, a hope to make contact with the divine, uh, but also a fear that we might actually make such contact given the visible effects um, on the bird here in this scene. The bird who was just being a bird and suddenly finds itself in the middle of a scene uh, no bird <laughs> could ever anticipate, right? Let alone another human, uh, let alone Mary. Um, it's such a it's, it's a powerful line, you know. What deep hope for me that that hope turns both ways a hope to make such contact, and a hope almost not to make such contact, given the implications of making it. That's right. That's right. Because it's a, it's an amazing and life changing thing, right? Yeah. Yeah. That's for sure. Um, you know, no, no, no convert. Uh, I think it's fair to say has had quite Mary's experience, <laughs> but um, but yet every convert has something of that kind of annunciation experience where you're you're touched by something, and you can't unsee or can't unfeel what comes to you there, yeah. with implications for for your yeah. own for your life. That's right. Wonderful. Um, uh, would you care to read another one for us? Okay. Well, I'm going to go back to Mary again, and. Um, this is called The Mother, and it's about Mary standing under the cross. Hmm. Um, and I say, the first line I say, a man once hypothesized that Mary ran from the cross. And that's actually an oblique reference to um, a novel by uh, an Irish writer called um, Colm uh, Toybin, because hmm. he wrote a novel called The Testament of Mary. And in, in the novel, Mary just runs from the cross. I mean, I haven't read it, but I've read about it because she just doesn't want to get involved and she's too scared. Okay, so this is my kind of response to that. Um, a man once hypothesized that Mary ran from the cross to save her own skin. Surely he was blind to these things. Christ as a blasted tree fused black against the sky, scourged, slashed, stabbed, and his mother as the deep roots beneath him. How could she go? She was the earthed wire of his agony, rooting his pain to the earth's marrow. The ground will never stop singing, nor our bones if they'll listen. Our children hurt and they cry. We carry their grief in our frames like a new kind of gravity. Understand, you who doubt this love or the grit to bear it. The long fields are ready for running and many do run, but like those fields, seeded thoroughly with yellow everlastings. She is the ground of his life, the shell of his sounding. There is nowhere else she could be. Such a beautiful poem. A little word there for mothers everywhere. Yeah, you know, I was gonna, I was gonna say, something about this collection that I found so really um, striking, so stunning, was the way that it connects Mary and Jesus. And Mary, uh, not as a distant person of veneration, um, but Mary as a mother. 
and the input and 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 a mother unlike any other in some respects and that no one's had a child like this but yet a mother like every other mother in that the connection is also a maternal connection absolutely and i think that's the important thing is that you know mary is our experiences writ large you know it's not that it's not that her experiences are so very different from ours i mean in one sense they are because she's you know magnified a million times but on the other hand the experiences are, are universal yeah you know so we can we can all identify with them and we can all kind of walk in her shoes just like we can walk in Christ's shoes i mean not to the same not in the same way but they can they contain our archetypes and our our patterns and our and everything we go through yeah yeah um thank you let me let me um maybe Gosh, there are a couple of poems I'd love to talk with you about. I'm really torn, which one we do. <laughs> I could spend a very long time talking with you, Sally, about the books, about the poems in this book. Um, let's go to the poem, how about Gethsemane? Um, but I also want to ask you about one more, too, maybe. So I'll do Gethsemane first, at least, and, and we'll see what we have for time. But okay, the poem Gethsemane. I watch the push of soft red petal from the cactus's tip the sticky cobweb strung from spike to spike. These days, when prayer's too hoarse, too ripped for words, I cannot say a word. Does that still count? Answer, we know how his tight mesh of skin that night leaked drops of blood, and how the angel came, pushed through the dark like hand through sleeve, like notes of ordered song from vicious wind all comes from inside out dread thoughts escape unskinned and wild like moths or a silver flash of olive leaves but too the angel comes from where he hid and sings the curtain tears and so does skin and so does prayer it is a kind of wordless tearing our brokenness used as entry for him our brokenness filled by his mm, I, is such a beautiful poem I that image of the cactus flower that opens the poem it works beautifully though it's so counterintuitive this is one of the great poetic traces you know, the poetic you know kind of mechanisms at work in this poem how did that image come to you did the image precede the idea for the poem or did the did the did, did it come to you after you already had kind of a general sketch of what the poem was going to be doing no, I tell you how it happened. I was sitting on the front step outside in my yard and there was a cactus <laughs> with a red flower, <laughs> you know, push, <laughs> yeah, literally <laughs> pushing through. And I yeah. just, then it all, I was just thinking, I was, I was going, you know, I was upset about something, going through something. I don't even know what anymore. And, you know, and I was just watching this like red flower coming out of this harsh situation. And I just, and I just was thinking about Christ. I think it was around the time of Lent and that it all came out, you know, it all came out in that way, how, exactly like the poem says you know yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah so it's kind of like it is a weird image but it kind of connected to to what was you know what was in that situation for christ and like how angels come from from nowhere and, and all that stuff yeah yeah i think it's an ingenious image i love it i love that turn um the last three lines of the poem go right to the heart of christian spirituality i mean repeating those lines again the curtain tears and so does skin and so does prayer it is a kind of wordless tearing our brokenness used as entry for him, our brokenness filled by his. Um, I, I love that. 
Does the I'm curious for you. Does the brokenness you feel um, evolve as you travel along, you know, your own devotional path, or is there something persistent and self-same about that brokenness? It's always the same kind of experience. I don't know. I think that when a person converts, at least for me, there's like a huge break. There's like a lot of brokenness going along. And I think um, I think it becomes a bit less. But I think as Christians, we have to we have to let ourselves be broken on a regular basis. This is the thing. I think that when we get too too whole, too healed, too kind of complacent, that's when things don't go so well. We have to kind of regularly just think, okay, that's it. I'm the broken jar. Like you know, I I have to be filled with God. I have to accept that I that I can't do this. I have to accept that I'm imperfect. And so, does it change? Um, I think it's always painful, but maybe, maybe it's fair to say that as we go along in the spiritual life, we are more confident about accepting that as a reality, and we don't get so um, immature about it. Perhaps we don't get so kind of wailing about it. Yeah, yeah. I come. I, I guess I come back here to something you said earlier in our conversation. You know, we talked about kind of that foundation underneath. Um, that allows us to be able to open and kind of question certain assumptions. I think as this process happens, you're more aware of the foundation and what that is and how that holds you up. And similarly, that that brokenness, though it, you're right, when we become too complacent, <laughs> you're just you're you're just waiting for lightning to strike. At least I am in my own in my own case. But there's something about the experience of finding uh, God present in those moments. That becomes mm-hmm. persistent enough begin to recognize how this works. That this is actually, it's 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 not a bad thing, but a good thing to find yourself feeling broken by something, by some circumstance, by some uh, sort of new self understanding about something you don't like in yourself, about something mm-hmm. that happens or befalls you or others that you love, whatever it may be. Um, the, the 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 faith that God is there, I think, is really what kind of bears us up, and that becomes more become more familiar with the sense of being than made whole again uh, by one greater mm-hmm. than yourself. Yeah, yeah, which is the best kind of wholeness. Yeah, yeah for sure. Yeah. You know, you published your conversion story in 2016, um, this story titled Night's Bright Darkness, and you talk there about your atheist upbringing and about how much you needed to change, you know, change, you know, convert really before you felt able to enter the church. But you also um, make it a point in that book to express gratitude for what you learned from your atheist father. I'm going to quote you here from, from your, that book, Night, Night's Bright Darkness. He prepared me to know God. In his atheism, he stripped me of all pretense and selfishness and false worship and rights with regard to God. He taught me to kneel to nothing false, to have no false master. That's a great observation. And if you've been raised in a home that sheltered you from hard things from the truth even a christian home right where where maybe certain hard truths were kept from you about human life or suffering or the universe as we know it do you think you would still be christian today i guess i'm asking um whether what you've observed of religious inculcation inspires or concerns you uh, and whether you were blessed in part but i guess by that atheist upbringing well, I think that for me, sort of personally, I think, you know, God knew all along that um, this was right for me. I think I had to have that atheism and then rebel against it to go into religion. Perhaps, you know, I'm a, re- I'm a rebellious spirited person, so perhaps if I'd been brought up a Christian, it would have, I would have ended up, you know, you know, leaving the church. It's, it's so hard to say, isn't it? I, 
I, I'm grateful because I, I had this very strong sense, as I said in, in that book, of, you know, starting from like a, a tabula rasa. I just, and it took me a really long time to pray to God for certain things, right? And I don't want to say it's wrong to pray for things because, I mean, Jesus tells us to pray for things, right? You know, knock and, and you know, the door should be open, etc. So it's good to pray for things. But it took me a really long time to sort of pray for myself or pray for specific things to happen. And I do that now, but I think it's... Um, it's not a bad thing to have that kind of basic humility and to to be rid of the selfishness. Perhaps that's what my dad sort of conveyed to me through theatism, if that makes any sense at all. It does. He, he had a terrible scorn for people who were who wanted just to grasp things for religion. And um, I think I still, even now, I feel a bit guilty if I'm just praying for trivial things, you know? Sure. I, uh, yeah. yeah. No, I appreciate that. You know, I was raised in a strong religious home myself. Um, but I do think that everybody has to sort of make their own way eventually. Nobody gets to ride on the coattails of others when it comes to the life of faith. And, and you have to find it on your own somewhere. And that is not an easy thing uh, to do. Um, and, and let me ask you about something else that you say in, the, in, in Night's Bright Darkness. Um, uh, you talk about spending many hours talking with Catholic friends um, right before you converted. And then a very influential priest um, who entered your your life here but it, it you say and this was i thought really insightful it wasn't arguments right for god or religion that inspired faith in you as much as it was a sense of christ's presence and you feeling um that you were known uh by by christ can you describe this experience not argument but presence can you describe what that was like yeah um Yes, because my friends, they didn't try and convert me at all. And it was, I had these, you know, as the book says, I had these three kind of major encounters with God that were like, well, they were, you know, mystical experiences. And it was really the final one that was Christ coming to me. I was in this little church and I I spoke aloud to this picture of Christ in this window. And I said, if you're there, you have to help me. And I had this enormous sense of Christ's presence, you know, coming to me. And and this feeling of almost physically being lifted up. It was just so strong and powerful. And I'd been crying and my tears just dried. And, you know, suddenly it just like everything fell into place. So that presence, of course, that was probably the most powerful I've ever felt it. Um, but I knew that presence then and I knew, I knew what I had to do. I knew then that I was a Christian, like it was instantaneous. I wasn't instantaneously Catholic, but I was instantaneously Christian. Sure. And yeah, and th so that presence is what, what I hungered for. That was all I wanted. And then the arguments, you know, of course, when you're talking about Catholicism, there are certain very specific things you've got to navigate. And But it was really all about the presence of Christ for me. It was all, always about him loving me and knowing me and me knowing and loving him. And then, and then things fell into place. And I could kind of see the logic and the philosophy and the teaching and all that kind of stuff. It all, it all just came clear. Yeah, that's, you know, I find in my own circumstance, that really resonates with me, what you said. Thank you for sharing that. Um, I find in my own circumstance that, I mean, it's good to know arguments. It's good to know theology, for example, and, and be able to sort of explain why you believe what you believe and, 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 and to be able to sort of explain to others why you may disagree in a certain point of something. I mean, it's important to know arguments. But ultimately, um, it really is a sense of the Spirit's presence, God's presence, that, that converts. Um, and, and just dwelling in, in some sense of that spiritual sort of place can do so much to sort of untie the knots in my own soul. 
you come away from that so much more changed than if you hear just a really good argument. For me, at least, I find that to be true. Yeah, and I think it goes back to what I was saying a few minutes ago. Perhaps this will make it clearer about prayer and about asking for things in prayer. I think that's really about the same kind of thing. That sometimes, you know, deep faith is kind of beyond words. We may have lots and lots of things that we want from God, or we may have many arguments. But ultimately, when we sit before His presence, it, we don't need the words even because He knows what we what we need and what we what what we just what we need, and he can clarify those arguments, like he does it all. And this was the real sense I had during my conversion was it wasn't about men or women trying to convert me. It, it was about God. It was only Jesus Christ that was going to convert me. And it was very much an other experience. It was a supernatural experience. It was not on the natural plane because I wasn't going to listen to anybody. You know, I'd heard all those arguments before, like I wasn't interested. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. You know, it didn't matter uh -huh. how good the arguments are. You're not going to convince someone if they really don't want to believe what they say. If they're not ready. That's right. No, that's profound. I think that's right. I, I, and what you say is so striking that the experience is going to be beyond words. I find that from a poet to be both enigmatic but really true, right? I mean, and a lot of what poetry does is it takes words and uses them in unusual arrangements to create some new feeling or some new insight, some, some new sense of a thing that we have not been able to quite articulate or perhaps feel quite so specifically before. I just there's some I, there's so many great lines in these poems. It, one of your poems, um, the bleeding woman. I won't read the whole poem. It's about the woman who's got the issue of blood and she wants to touch the hem of Christ's garment. And she does, and she's healed right away. And he asks, "Did virtue go out of me?" <laughs> um, but I love I love the last uh, three lines. Um, the last couple lines. Just, I knew then. This is her voice speaking. I knew then that prayer is all touch. It's a great line. The staunching of his flesh on my losses, the merciful weakness of sky. That last phrase, the merciful weakness of sky. It's like that line, the other poem, Gethsemane, about that red flower. It's, it kind of, it's, it, 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 it comes out of nowhere, but it's so perfect as a way to kind of put a mood onto what's just happened in that poem. These words um, to express what is beyond words. I find it wonderful. I mean, uh, Thomas Merton, the, um, the American uh, monk and convert and poet, he said that with every poem, there has to be a space where a space of mystery where you, you don't go, that you don't speak and that you can't speak. Because what you're really doing is approaching something that, that, is, that is worthless, that, that is indescribable. And I think that's especially true in religious poetry. Yeah, great. Uh, thank you. Let me ask you about one thing you say in the book, Annunciation, uh, subtitled Call to Faith in a Broken World. This is a kind of a, a book written to your daughter, um, and I, lots of great insights here. You write this, I'm quoting you, I think one of our greatest errors is in thinking that we are quite alone in our relationship with God. Of course, in one sense, we are just that, intensely alone with our Creator. But in another sense, we are more connected to each other to family, to friends, to previous generations and generations to come, to the whole of humanity than we can ever realize here on this earth. Okay, I love that. How do you balance this feeling of connectedness that comes to us through relationship with God, so it's this, this intense connectedness with God and others, etc., with, on the other hand, the loneliness that often accompanies those who seek a spiritual life uh, in mm. our secular uh, society? Speaking for myself, I feel both those things, right? connectedness and also some isolation pretty intensely at times. How do you balance those? I feel the isolation a lot. 
<laughs> um, because you know my family is still non-believing my family in England and my husband's not a great believer you know so I, I do feel that isolation a lot and but at the same time it's like I say I mean we are so interconnected as as Christians and it's isn't it always interesting to think about heaven you see it's, if I'm a bit of an introvert so for me it's very tempting to think of heaven as like me and God <laughs> and that's great <laughs> But, you know, let's face it, we're going to be with everybody. It's about that. It's about the loving of everybody. So, you know, being a Christian, it's a very sociable religion in a strange way, at the same time as being very, very solitary, as you say. So it's a real balance. And we have that a lot in the the Catholic Mass. I mean, the Mass is very, um, you don't really speak to anybody, you're facing the front, right? But at the same time, you have to have that level of, of communicating on the horizontal level with your fellow parishioners and, and that's very much a part of it and i have to really watch that in myself i'm not too solitary that i that i do reach out to people um but i find the idea of you know the communion of saints and, and all of that just just wonderful that you know we're not on our own we're really not you know and as we pray you know we're not just praying alone yeah that's right i, I love that thank you sally um this has been a great conversation let me kind of leave you with um kind of some thoughts again, kind of returning to where we started um, about talking about this, these, these, these poems here in Dawn of This Hunger. Um, now that you've written this collection of devotional poems, do you feel you have more to say as a poet or are you still in the same place uh, where you were after you converted, you know, wondering whether there is more poetry in you or whether God would have you express that poetry? And perhaps another way I could ask that question is like this. Do you wonder whether the poetry that is in you, that is your gift, will express itself in some other way, some other act of creativity or insight or vocation or sacrifice rather than as written poems? Yeah, I don't know. I, I Today, I honestly couldn't say if I'll ever write another poem again. I have no idea because at the moment I'm writing um, a nonfiction book and I've just been editing a poetry anthology, you know, so I've been doing other things. And But you see, my, my prose is to me you know it's very related to the poetry it's not like it's um very very different i write quite poetic prose if you like but yes about just basic poetry am i ever going to write a poem again it's completely in god's hands i have no idea (laughs) Um, but also just to get in there as well that in, in terms of vocation um you know i think that we tend to pigeonhole vocation a lot and i think my vocation takes on many um many faces and one of those could be caring. Like I feel very pulled to go back into nursing sometimes. So hmm. I just don't know. You know, I really don't know. Okay. Well, um, personally, I hope that you're that you're led uh, to to produce more poems. I love them so much. That you are also a great prose writer. Um, it's been such a delight for me to encounter your work. And this conversation, Sally, has been a real joy. Thank you for your time and for your your work and your insights. Uh, so much appreciated. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Faith and Imagination Podcast. This podcast is sponsored by the Faith and Imagination Institute, the BYU Humanities Center, and the College of Humanities at Brigham Young University, and is produced and edited by Sophia Snyder and Bobby May. The music for this podcast is composed by Ethan Wickman and is performed by Nicholas Phillips and Albany Records. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review on your podcast platform. And if you're interested in other episodes, check out our website at humanitycenter.byu.edu. Thanks again for listening.